0: Well, good morning. How are we all this morning? Cold? Well, let us be warmed by the great words of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank and praise you for your word. We thank and praise you that you have gathered us, that you have taught us to listen to Jesus. We ask this morning, Father, as we hear your command, as we hear the word to listen to him, Help us clear our expectations, help us to think clearly and help us to listen well that our hearts and minds might be conformed to love and to serve our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Have you ever been unsure about a purchase? Have you ever purchased something and thought, what have I gotten myself into? Just this week, Trudy and I have been thinking about buying Trudy a new phone, because her phone was on the blink. We didn't really want to buy a brand new phone because they're really expensive. So we decided to get a refurbished phone that was significantly cheaper, but it still had the functionality we wanted. So I went online and made a purchase from what is known as a reputable company. I saw the bone, I paid the money, The money went out from my bank account, I saw that, but I received no confirmation email. When I purchased the phone, it was supposed to arrive two days later. I heard nothing from the company. Now I was wondering, have I made a mistake? I had, I typed in the wrong email address, but while I waited not knowing if Trudy's phone would arrive, I was deeply unsure of the purchase I'd made. I had no certainty, no confirmation that the phone would arrive. All I had was a bank statement with my missing money. And as I waited, wondering the whole week whether the phone would arrive, whether I had made this massive mistake, it wasn't until Friday that the phone had come and I could breathe. Of relief. Now, she and I are happy with the phone we've gotten, but I wondered that whole week: was this something wrong? Was my purchase, was my faith in the phone or in the company wrong? Have you ever made a purchase like that? Have you ever made a purchase where you're going, I'm not sure this is what I want. I'm not sure if this is what I'm expecting or this is what I really wanted. Today in our passage, we have a similar situation. We're going to see God the Father console the fears and expectations of the disciples about Jesus being their chosen king, the chosen Messiah. And we'll see how the Father helps them get over their fear of wondering, well, have we made a mistake by following this guy? Have we made a mistake In following Jesus now last week we saw Peter made his famous proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah the Christ the anointed King sent from God and it's always fascinating that as soon as Peter makes that he tells Jesus what to do but after rebuking Jesus Jesus says well that if you want to follow me if you want to be my disciple where you must take up your cross and follow me and as dave said last week that means denying ourselves denying our wants denying who we are and who we want to be and following jesus as the king and we saw that in taking up our cross that the cross is a death sentence to follow jesus means to die to ourselves so after making this pronouncement that Following Jesus means a road of self-denial. A, could, a person could be asking, is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus? And so we come to our passage before us today and the passage opens with Jesus going up on the mountain with three of his disciples. Now mountains are very significant places in the Old Testament. Certainly what is about to take place is reminiscent of what we read about in Exodus. Now Jesus goes up upon the mountain and as he stands before his disciples, he is transformed before them. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become as white as light. Can you imagine being there for just a moment? Can you imagine how strange that would have been to see this figure that you've been following, this man, for all this time transformed before you, becoming bright, light shining from him the strangest of the situation it must have struck the disciples and as you look at that situation you might come to the question that I've been asking this whole week why is Jesus doing this now why now why not after the resurrection now I think to answer to these questions has to do with what we saw last week Jesus has just told his disciples six days earlier that they're about to go to Jerusalem that he is about to go to Jerusalem and die at the hands of the authorities if I was one of the disciples even if Jesus had told me about his impending death I'd be asking well is he the one if he's going to Jerusalem to die is this the guy I should be following Is this the Messiah we've been waiting for? Jesus dying as the Messiah would not have been expected by Jesus' disciples. So I would have been wondering, is he the one? Have I, I'd be having one of those, have I made the right purchase moments at this point? Now Jesus being transformed before the disciples appears to answer that question. But the disciples still don't understand that Jesus' path to glory is through the road of suffering on the cross. As we heard Peter say last week, what God seems to be doing is to be encouraging and preparing the disciples for what is about to happen to Jesus. And as he's up on the mountain transfigured, all of a sudden to add to the strangeness and magnificence of the moment, we read suddenly moses and elijah appeared to them talking with them then peter said to jesus lord it's good for us to be here if you want i'll set up three shelters here one for you one for moses one for elijah if jesus being transfigured was not enough all of a sudden might moses and elijah show up how do the disciples know it's moses and elijah well we have to remember that they are re- we are reading an account that was recorded later. The disciples would have had time to ask Jesus about it. The fact that we know that it was Moses and Elijah is important though because these two prophets are significant to the history of Israel. Moses being significant because he's the prophet at Mount Sinai. God speaks to him and to the people from the cloud out Mount Sinai. He's the figure that God used to to lead Israel out of Egypt. Elijah also had his significant mountain experience. When Israel was in apostasy and in the grip of a drought because of Ahab's rebellion, God sent Elijah and he challenged the prophets of Baal to show that them that Baal was their true God. But Elijah said, no, God is your true God. And they failed and Elijah executed them when God Rain down fire or thunder from heaven. In each case, God was showing himself to be the true God of Israel. But significantly this time, when Moses and Elijah show up upon the mountain, we do not hear a word from them. Because even though they are there, their job was ultimately to point to Jesus. Everything going up upon the mountain is a sign. Everything is pointing to one thing, Jesus. This is God's way or it's God's method of sticking a giant neon sign upon Jesus and saying, this is my chosen king. This is the one you are to follow. It would be like driving along the road and seeing the golden arches and saying, I wonder if they sell burgers there. Or you go along and you see the kernel in red and white. As soon as you see that sign, you know that you're going to get very greasy chicken with half-decent chips. That is why companies spend millions of dollars on brands. When you see the sign, when you see the branding, you know what you're going to get. Everything that is taking place, is God sticking that giant neon sign upon Jesus and saying, this is my chosen king. This is the one you have been waiting for. Now, Peter, he sees all this and his first response is, do you want me to build three shelters? And I'm going to look at the other accounts because to know what's motivating Peter here, but Peter is terrified at that point. At this point, he's just mouthing off because he doesn't know what to say or to do. And fair enough, I'd be terrified. And in his terror, he's just trying to make sense of the situation. His suggestion about building three t- shelters is really asking the question, "Why am I here?" What am I supposed to do with all of this? And we find out the answer in verse 6. When he, when the father speaks, while he, being Peter, was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Now, this whole section contrasts to the time when Israel met with God at Mount Sinai. A bright cloud covers over all of those upon the mountain with Jesus. The point being that where is at Mount Sinai where God is covered in darkness and Israel cannot approach or see God. As we heard, they would be stoned, they would be shot with arrows if they even approached God. Israel is still some distance away from God. There is this constant tension throughout the Old Testament that though God wants to dwell with man, man cannot dwell with God because of our sin. And at Mount Sinai, this is all signified with Israel standing and staying outside of the cloud, signifying that they were outside of God's presence. But with Jesus, God's presence is with them. God is with his people on the mountain. The disciples, even Moses and Elijah, are all inside the cloud. They are all standing in God's presence. In Jesus, God finally draws near to man. Instead of God being unapproachable, as was the case throughout the whole Old Testament history, here on this mountain, God in Jesus finally draws close and bees with man, and then the Father speaks, and the Father's words are a repeat of the words Jesus uh, of, of the words He spoke at Jesus' baptism, with one change, and we'll get to that change in a moment. But it is worth going over all of the Father's words. For now, the Father's words combine Psalm 2 with Psalm 42. Firstly, looking at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Every time one of Judah's kings were crowned, they read out the psalm to remind the people, that the king of God, oh, to remind the people and the king of God's promises to them that God will set a king forever upon the throne of Israel. But when you read the psalm, well, the Jews would have had a bit of a problem with the psalm. For, if you read, for when I read the relevant parts of the psalm as to why the fa- father quotes it, you'll see the problem. We read, I declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. Did you hear this? This king is powerful. He is strong. He is here to rule the nations. But here is the problem with the psalm for Israel. Historically speaking, including at the time of Jesus, Israel was basically the punching bag Of the Middle East every time one of the major empires wanted to attack Egypt which historically speaking was something that was pretty common they'd roll through Israel like it was the Hume Highway the only time Israel ever approached to being a major player in the region were in the days of Solomon and maybe arguably David but besides those two times After Israel's separation or the breakup of the nation in the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam, they were never a major power or factor in the region. So you can imagine reading Psalm 2 and thinking, as an Israelite, when is this great king who's going to rule the world, where is this major power, when is he going to come? Where is he? God is saying, here he is. Here is your great king. Here is this powerful king that you have been waiting for, Israel. This is the time. This is the man. But then you come to the second part of the father's words, which come from Isaiah. Israel is looking for the powerful king and a kingdom that will rule over the word, our world but the quote from Isaiah gives a, an almost completely different and contradictory image to psalm 2 we read in psalm, uh, Isaiah 42 this is my servant i will strengthen him this is my chosen one i delight in him i'll put my spirit on him he will bring justice to the nations he will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick he will faithfully bring justice he will not grow weak or be discouraged until he established justice on earth the coasts and islands will wait for his instruction now this is not the image of a powerful king the last part, the latter 20 chapters of Isaiah are referred to as the Suffering Servant Songs. They don't speak about a powerful king who rules the world, they speak of God's servant who suffers for the sake of his people. Isaiah 53 6 We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. Of us all how do you reconcile this image of a suffering servant with this powerful king of Psalm 2 how do you put these two ideas together the Jews never understood how these passages concerning the suffering servant would fit with the image of this powerful King written about the Jews never put them together who would They seem completely contradictory. They seem different images. And it is hard to understand how those ideas could fit together if you are thinking about earthly kingdoms. But as we look at Isaiah, we see what this meek and gentle king has come to do. Establish peace on earth. The reason the Jews had so much trouble putting these passages together is that they didn't see their sin as the problem. When Jesus came to establish peace on earth, the first person that needed to be dealt with to bring peace, it wasn't the Romans, it was God himself. And this is how establishes, how Jesus establishes peace on earth. He deals with our sin problem because in sin people have declared war against god i want to talk to the non-christians for a moment when we look around the world with all its associated problems you may ask what is god going to do about it and it is a fair question but to deal with uh, God's solution, you rightfully need to understand or diagnose the problem. Like any doctor, if you go to the doctor and you need cancer cut out of your body, the last thing you want is a Band-Aid for a paper cut. You first need to diagnose the issue rightly. The world's problems flow out of man's sin. Until the problem of sin is dealt with, then no other solution will work long term. Sin is like a malignant cancer deep in the body. Until it is fully removed, it will just keep shedding bits of itself and multiplying to other parts of the body. It is the same with sin. That is the problem at the heart of humanity. Our sin just keeps multiplying. The reason people tend to fail to see Jesus as God's solution is they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see their sin as the primary problem. It is easy to look at everyone else and say, well, this is the issue or that is the problem. Or to say, God should do something about whatever. Or to even ask, why doesn't the church fix this or do that? And generally speaking, as people see various problems around the world, they're real issues. But all the problems in the world flow out of man's sinfulness. That is the first issue that needs a solution. Unless we see ourselves as sinners needing a saviour, then Jesus is God's answer to the world problems. It will never, ever make sense. The real difference between Christians and non-Christians is simply this. Christians have asked and received God's forgiveness for their sin. And that is what God is offering everyone today. The forgiveness of your sin. That is the malignant cancer inflicting us all. And that is what God offers to everyone. The cure to sin by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in what he has done for us. The question he is asking us all is why not take up that offer today? Now the way you take up that offer uh, in a lot of ways comes from the rest of the passage. And so going back to the passage, when we consider the words of the Father, I said there is one difference between what is said here and what was said at Jesus' baptism and it is that last bit at the end listen to him this is what this whole passage this whole scene is about the command to listen to jesus everything in this passage is about this one command listen to jesus jesus has brought the disciples up the mountain to hear this command they're not there to build tents they're not there to feed crowds There's no one to feed except Moses and Elijah. They are there so that they will hear and heed the words of the Father. And so they, and as they need to hear and obey those words, so must we. Are we listening to Jesus? How are we going with that? Are we taking the time? To listen to him not just in bible study groups but also in our own time what are we learning from god's word at present are we really listening or are we just going through the motions listening is hard work listening to hear what people are saying not just what we think they are saying or what we want them to say but listening to what they're actually saying it takes discipline It takes practice. It is hard to listen. Peter gave a great example of Paul listening last week. Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the King. Now let me tell you what you need to do. That's not listening. But we get a great example of how to listen well as Jesus comes down the mountain. As Jesus and the disciples go down the mountain... They have a conversation, and their conversation teaches them how to listen well. We read in verse 9, As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him on the contrary they did whatever they pleased to him in the same way the son of man is going to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he'd spoken to them about john the baptist this is one of those moments where the disciples begin to realize what's going to happen begin to realize what's really going on as they come down the mountain with jesus He tells them, don't tell anyone about what you just saw, which seems strange, but he's saying, don't tell them until the resurrection happens. And we can surmise the reason for this is they still haven't fully realised that Jesus has come to conquer death and more importantly, how he's going to do it. Jesus being transformed before their eyes still could have played into Israel's wrong understandings about the Messiah or the Messianic expectations at the time. So Jesus is saying to them, Don't tell people because I don't want to feed their wrong thinking. Okay, makes sense. But then they ask Jesus this cryptic question about something they've heard the scribes or the academics of their day talking about. And they're asking, what's this thing about Elijah's going to come? Now, what they're referring to is a prophecy coming uh, from the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi, where God says, That before the day of his judgment comes Elijah will come to the people and you can read about it in Malachi 4 if you want later on at that period of time in Israel people were expecting the Messiah to come this was a common expectation now the disciples they've just seen a visual confirmation that Jesus is this great Messiah he is this great King So after seeing Jesus turn into this shining vision of glory, they're asking, well, where's the Elijah part come? We haven't seen Elijah. Sure, they've just seen him up on the mountain, but how's Elijah going to go to the nations and restore all things? We're missing something. And here is where expectations block listening well. Because as Jesus said, Elijah has already come. And the people have missed it. And the reason they missed it is that John was the Elijah. John had come in the pattern, in the shape of Elijah, in that his message was Elijah's message, that people need to turn back to God. That's what Israel had missed. They they had treated the Elijah of their day so horribly in missing that John was the Elijah. And they ended up killing him. And then the disciples realize that the Elijah figure was John themselves. And after seeing the way the nation had treated John, the persecution and suffering he received at the nation's hands, I think they begin to understand the road before Jesus. And from there it is not hard to see how they'll see that that road will eventually be one that they have to walk themselves. Whatever they are really thinking at this time, it is clear that they are truly beginning to understand that all their expectations about the Messiah were wrong. Listening and learning to listen well to Jesus required them to jettison their expectations so that they could hear him clearly. Every Sunday when we come to church, We all come with concerns, we all come with dreams, we have our thoughts, our hopes, our stresses, our anxieties. Some of them are not that bad, some of them are terrible. Some of them are very, very real, and very, very reasonable. But no matter the person, all people have hope for the future. As Christians, we place our hope for the future in Jesus. But those hopes create expectations. And because we want our expectations fulfilled, naturally we hear anything that will bolster those expectations, that will give us clear hope that those expectations will be fulfilled. But inversely, we block out anything that blocks us from receiving our hope. We do not hear things that say, well, that's not going to be the way you expect. And this is where learning to listen well means we need to learn to allow God to speak on his own terms. We need to hear clearly what he is saying. Our expectations, our hopes for the future, they block so much of what God is saying to us because that is not what we are hoping for. But learning to listen well means suppressing or dismantling our own expectations. And it means allowing God to speak so that he shapes what we hope for. That his expectations become our expectations. That his dreams, his plans for the future become our hope, our future, what we strive for. And to do that, to learn to listen well, to learn to listen to Jesus is hard work. But it is work that is worth it. You will never be disappointed in this purchase. You will never regret trusting Jesus. Yes, your dreams your hopes, your future, what you a lot of what we wanted need to go to the wayside. But learning to listen to him gives us far more than we could possibly imagine. That is what this passage is about. Learning to listen to Jesus. Are we listening to him? Do we hear? Are we doing that hard work? As Jesus' disciples, do we hear the call of the Father? Listen to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for Jesus. We thank and praise you that he is our king our Saviour, that he has come into the world to die for the forgiveness of our sins, something we do not deserve, something we do not earn, something we can never earn through our efforts, but something that is freely given to us when we place our hope and our trust in him. Teach us what it means to listen to him. Teach us what it means to obey him, that we might live for his praise, and live for his glory. And we ask this in his name. Amen.